0: Okay, so we're going to steal your violinist for our church forever. Um, We'll uh, we'll we'll just accept any musical gifts you've got. We'll just take them on over. We do have a lot of wonderful musicians in our church, and we're grateful for that. But i got to tell you, I don't think I've sung sung a song like that Sands of Time song uh, that got to my heart so quickly in a while. Uh, Wow. Is this one you guys sing a lot? Yep, we're we're definitely taking that one, too. Well, it is an honor. It's an honor to get to open God's Word to you. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5, we're going to read a really weird text together. Um, But while you're turning there, I just want to take a moment and say, uh, as much as I like your musicians, probably the person I love most in your church is your pastor. That man is dear to my heart. And I get to spend a couple days with him this week, so that's going to be a thrill for me. Um, we're going to have our pastor's retreat that Scott alluded to a few minutes ago. It's something we've been doing for about four years now. And uh, and it was in those times that I most got to see the heart of this man. His heart for you, his heart for his kids and his wife, um, and his heart for Jesus. And he makes me a better man, and he makes me a better pastor. So I'm, I'm getting a little choked up. I am grateful for Luke. So uh, it's a joy that I have that, yeah, I get to preach to you. That's wonderful. But I know he's feeding my flock back in Hannah city right now. So that is a thrill to my heart. So yeah, I get to see Luke for a, a few days. I'm jealous that you get to see him all the time. Um, Luke chapter 5, obscure passage maybe in some ways. It's one that you've probably heard some of the details of over the years. Uh, maybe you've read through it and you're familiar enough with it. So I'm going to try not to stumble through the names. Uh, there are probably just normal English words that I'll stumble through as I read this as well. There's no way I'm going to be able to do justice to reading God's Word the way that Molly did just a few minutes ago. That was that was exceptional and encouraged my heart. It is its it's an important thing to have scripture reading. It's an important thing to do that as part of your worship, and I'm glad she was able to read it so faithfully. Genesis chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth Kenan lived, after he fathered Mahalalel, 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived, after he fathered Jared, 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, illuminate this text speak to our hearts. Let us see Jesus and him only. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're anything like me, uh, you've had moments of your life, seasons of your life where you have dedicated yourselves to reading the entire Bible, maybe in a year, maybe over the course of a couple of years. And if you're like me, you've probably had seasons in your life where you have made that commitment and failed miserably. For me, it always comes, the wall, you know what I'm talking about when I say the wall, when you're reading these and having these commitments? The wall always comes in a couple of different places, and one of those places is any time I come to the genealogies. I come to the genealogies, and I start to read them, and of course, you stumble over the names, and you know, I want you to know, this is the preacher's trick, this is the scripture reader's trick. Do not worry if you don't know how to pronounce it. Just sound like you know what you're talking about, and everyone else will agree with you. Okay, that's the trick. I don't know if I successfully maintain that trick, but that's the trick. Um, But whenever I would read these genealogies, I would come to names I didn't understand, or I would come to names that I would never see again in the Scriptures, and I would get frustrated, and I'd stumble over them. And as is my habit, when I'm reading something in my head, if I come to something I can't read, or that I don't know how to pronounce, I stop, and I try to say it out loud, and then it just throws off the whole cadence of trying to get through this passage of Scripture in a timely manner. So yeah, that's my wall. That's one of them anyway. It's one of those places where, besides just... My, my flesh, the world, the devil, all the other things that caused me to, to struggle. I come to these genealogies and I just get confused. And for years, I had uh, no joy. You know, the joy you would feel if I had really messed up some of these names. You know, it's that kind of joy that uh, only in a godly way that you could have, which, I, by the way, I appreciated the prayer of, uh, of just having hearts of praise instead of hearts of, of criticism. So thank you, by the way, for not criticizing me. Anyway, you may have in your hearts, but I trust you. I think you're better than that. When I come to these passages, when I come to the genealogies, for years I had no joy in them until I finally started to understand, especially this kind of genealogy, I began to see something beautiful, something joyful and glorious, something wonderful. And I'm thinking, I suspect you guys, have, have, have you all preached through the book of Genesis before? Are you familiar with a word? I'm going to be passing it on to some of you maybe new. Some of you maybe have heard it before. And if Luke has, uh, has preached through Genesis, I suspect he's mentioned this word. It's a Hebrew word. It's the word toledot. So Joe, in preparing these bulletins, did not make an error in the, in, in the sermon title. If you were wondering, he did not. This was, a, uh, this was an intentional uh, effort to draw your attention to a beautiful word, toledote. It's this word that we see in the passage when you see the words, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That phrase, translated the book of the generations of, is the Hebrew word toledot. In the NIV it says it's slightly different. It says the written accounts of the generations of Adam. The toledot is an amazing thing, and, and so what I really want to do is I want to I want to kind of focus in on that idea of a toledot. Explain what it is. Explain kind of how it worked, and then from that, hopefully, as we look at the text itself. So this is a really long introduction. I'm sorry, we'll be here till two or three this afternoon. Um, when you when you uh, see the this this idea, I want to I want to past the truths that we're going to look at in light of this toledot. So just a couple of things about Toledotes, okay? First of all, there are 10 of them in the book of Genesis, all right? So if you're a student of the Word and you're going to read Genesis on your own, you're going to, you're going to come across the generations of, the generations of, the generations of, okay? And when you do, just a couple of things to have in mind that will hopefully encourage your heart, help, hopefully help you read this. First of all, every time you see a Toledote, it's telling you, it's telegraphing to you that you're about to start a new section of Scripture, Okay, a new little uh, a section a, a, a pericope is one of the w- words that we use to call it. That it's it's just about to start something new and maybe telegraphing a little bit of what's to come in that in that uh, passage. All right, so that's that's the first thing, and I'll explain a little bit more how that benefits us as we go. But also. Um, It's very possible that Toledotes really were written down, like the NIV's translation puts it, that these may have been the things that were written down so that when they would maintain their stories and reflect their stories and keep passing those on from generation to generation, they would do so in the context of having the benefit of these written down genealogies for future generations. And Of course, I think that 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 there's a reason for that. There's at least a few different reasons. And one that I have come across over my studies, and, and I'm really convinced that this is the case, because this is reflective in the way that we tell our own stories in our own lives, is that these stories, these, these generations were told and, and written down as a memory aid to tell the stories. We do this, like we, we remember the time Aunt Sally had a bug fly up her nose, Right? Maybe you don't remember Aunt Sally having a bug. Whatever the story is in your own life, you have those those accounts, those moments, those experiences in your life, and you think, oh, yeah, you remember? We had to take her to the ER. Oh, that was in the backyard at the, when we were living on Maple Street. Yeah, it was right before... Yeah, Wesley had just been born, and, and then uh, Katie wasn't born yet, though, so it, it was definitely... We hadn't moved. We weren't getting ready to move, so we know... So it starts to place. You see what I mean? It starts to place... Those historical moments are placed in the context of the bigger events of our lives the central events of our lives and for the hebrew people these were essential moments and so by passing on those genealogies they were using them as a memory aid i believe so that we could have the faithful recollection of god's word and god's truth if you're ever wondering why in the world should we believe these stories that were written over that that were telling stories over hundreds maybe thousands of years before they were finally passed on Because we know that Moses wrote this stuff down. This would have been thousands of years after after the whole Adam and Eve account. Why in the world should we trust these stories to be true? Because the Hebrew people faithfully remembered their stories. They remembered them through things like these Toledotes, these, these generational genealogies. But really that brings us to the key point. The Toledotes were an incredible help and a gift to us now and to the Hebrew people in the Old Testament and on into the New Testament to remind us of God's faithfulness. We're picking up a passage right in the middle of the very beginning story of God's Word, right? Genesis 1, the creation. Genesis 2, a little bit more about the creation, focusing on the man and the woman being placed in a garden. Genesis 3, their expulsion from the garden because of sin. Genesis 4, sin's continual corruption as it corrupts the heart of one of the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain, as he murders his brother in a jealous rage. And then you come to chapter 5. And so we, when we pick up in the middle of a story like that, we're asked to remember, especially when we see a Toledote, a, a, a genealogy like this, we're asked to remember God faithfully keeps his promises. He made a promise back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he would crush the serpent, the devil, through the seed of the woman. And so we're seeing that faithful transmission The seed being passed down, the the generational promise getting passed down over and over and over. God's faithfulness. So what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about God's faithfulness. Talk about God's faithfulness through the course of this one little chapter of information, of details, that maybe some of which will get lost on us today, some of which we'll still not understand. We, we, we can look at those, those ridiculously long years and wonder, was that a typo somewhere along the way that the scribes put in there? Is this symbolic numbering that's meant for something else? Some believe that. Certainly we believe it's truth. How we walk that out is completely... And I have no intention of telling you how. So... I'll let you leave that one with Luke. In fact, I punted that one to a Sunday evening um, when I preached this, uh, th- this text to our people. I said, uh, oh, and we're going to talk about, let's talk about how old these people are tonight. And then it was kind of my way of trying to get more people to come on Sunday evenings. It didn't work. Um, but it was, a, it was a noble attempt. But God's faithfulness is what this passage is about. God's faithfulness in life and in death. And so you can, I think there may even be an outline in your, in your bulletins if you want to follow along with that. But we're going to talk about God's faithfulness in life and in death by looking at God's faithfulness in the death of life, His faithfulness in the life of death, and His faithfulness in the death of death. So we're going to see if we can see that in this passage. God's faithfulness. I'm noticing I'm getting older. This text feels really small to me. God's faithfulness. In the death of life. It's intriguing to me that, um, as, as uh, Ben Franklin said, the famous phrase, there are nothing is certain, nothing is certain in, in, in this world except two things, death and taxes, right? Now, when he said that to the guy he said that to in, the, in a letter, he, of course, was emphasizing the certainty of taxation, um, this passage is going to emphasize the certainty of death, the inevitability of death. Did you hear it when I read the passage? Over and over and over, it said, and he died, verse 5, and he died, verse 8, and he died, verse 11, 14, 17, 20, 27, 31, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, over and over and over, it's declaring this Guaranteed outcome, death. The inevitability of death. Guarantee, if you come into this world, if Jesus doesn't come back first, you're going to experience the end of life. Death. But if you look a little closer and you start to look at the names and you start to look at some of the stories of this passage, especially when you come to the guy who gets the distinction of being the longest lived, at least according to the numbers, Methuselah. So that, by the way, will be your if you ever get to go on Jeopardy, remember who is Methuselah or what is 969 years? I don't know. Whichever answer he gives you, be ready for it. When you come to Methuselah, you have this very intriguing storyline. If you start to do the math, which is what I think is probably one of the main reasons some of these numbers are written down, if you do the math and you work it out from the day of Methuselah's birth to the or the year of his birth to the year of his death, and you get down to, and you start adding the numbers together and you line them up, you quickly realize Methuselah's last year of life is also the year of the flood. It's the year when the flood waters were going to come and destruction was going to come on this earth. It's as if Methuselah is the harbinger of death. He's the, he's the promise that death is coming. In fact, his name could mean one of a couple of different things. One of them, that makes no sense, but it's man of the javelin. I have no idea what that could mean. Another translation is that it's something like this. death. And then it comes. What comes? The flood. The flood, right in that year, we don't know if it was the flood that killed Methuselah. The scripture doesn't tell us. We just know that when you do the math, the flood waters come and destruction comes. You see, because just as, it, as the death itself is inevitable, this passage hints at the the, the guarantee that ju- judgment as well is inevitable. That's what Hebrews 9 says, right? You go to Hebrews chapter 9, it says that we're destined to die once and then the judgment, right? Every single human being on this side of, of Jesus is going to experience death. And every single human being is going to have to stand before the Creator, Judge of the universe, and give an account. Now, of course, we know as believers, as children of the king, that we stand before God not having to plead our own merits, but we get to plead the merits of Jesus Christ, as we just sang a little bit ago in one of our songs. But death and judgment are inevitable. But it seems like a guy named Leonard Jones missed that memo. Um, Maybe some of you know who Leonard Jones is. He was most well-known for a couple of things. Well, one, he was a politician in the days of Abraham Lincoln. And, uh, and he was, would run for varying degrees of office from lowest level up, um, even trying to become president of the United States. He didn't get very far. Uh, he, had a, he had a party that was known as the High Moral Party. Um, but before he was a politician, Leonard Jones was a land speculator. That's where he got most of his money. And after he made his money speculating on land, he made his reputation speculating on God. He started in the Methodist Church and then or the Brethren Church and moved to the Methodist Church. Eventually didn't wasn't too happy or satisfied with what they taught there, so he moved on to the Shakers. From the Shakers to the to the Mormons. The Mormons Refused to give him, apparently, in his mind, the gift of speaking in tongues, so he left even the Mormon church and eventually just started his own religion with a friend. And in his religion, he had this conviction. If you fast the right ways and you pray the right way, you never have to taste physical death. Wouldn't that be great? In fact, we've got, there are multimillionaires, billionaires today, that are actively searching for the cure to death, actively trying to, outspend their mortality. Of course, young people just assume that they are immortal already. I remember I was 37 years old and I, had a, I went to the doctor. It was my, my buddy over in, over in uh, Bloomington Normal. He was our family doctor and he, uh, I had to go to him because I'd gone to the eye doctor and they had a, it was a really weird, very high blood pressure kind of uh, reading at the eye doctor, and so I immediately went to Dr. Luke. He's actually a Dr. Luke, just like in the Bible, only it's not him. And as I sat with him, and he put the blood pressure cuff on me, and he, they did the thing, and he's like, your blood pressure's fine. I think that was a false reading, but i got to tell you, as he looked at me, he could see the fear in my eyes. He said, you're scared, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, I'm scared. I don't, I'm not ready to die. i got some kids to take care of and to raise, and, but I felt that mortality. Not Leonard Jones. Leonard Jones was a wackadoo. Leonard Jones was committed to this idea, so committed, that it was quite embarrassing when his other friend, who did buy into this religious uh, kind of thing, um, ended up dying. And he had the uncomfortable and embarrassing uh, commitment to having to preach at his funeral. At which he effectively said, this guy just didn't have faith. Leonard Jones was committed. He was committed to the cause, committed to this belief, and of course, all the way until he got pneumonia. So committed, he didn't even bother getting treatment because I can't die. Why would this pneumonia slow me down? I'm going to be fine. And then he died. Were you, were you expecting a different end to that story? I don't think you were, right? <laughs> the guy died. We're destined to die once. And then the judgment. You better believe he stood before the God of the universe to give an account, he died. Methuselah's connection in this story is a reminder that not only do we die, but judgment's coming and the flood was coming. God's judgment on sin, God's judgment on this world uh, in that moment in history was coming. And Methuselah was the connecting point. cause every one of us has to deal with the fact that life ends there is a death of life but in that there's also a faithful god a god who promises to hold us through it a god who promises us to promises to give us hope after this life that's what we Proclaim—that's what we sing about every Sunday. That's what we declare to anyone who will listen. That while there is an inevitability of death and inevitability of judgment, we have a better hope because God is faithful. That's just the first of multiple truths that we can pull out of this. But a second one that I really want to draw out, that I think is, is important in this passage, is, is, a, is a truth that gets drawn out from this very mysterious figure. Named Enoch. Says in verse 21. Well, yeah, verse 21. When Enoch had lived sixty-five years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah three years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. My daughter, when I preached this passage, drew up she's, she's a nerd like me. She drew up uh, a, a bar graph and she, she did, she added up all the years and divided them by the number of people that were referenced here. and she said, Enoch completely threw off the lifetime average. That was terrible. And so of course she went low. she took his life as ending in 365 years, but if you're paying attention to the story, you see his life didn't end in 365 years. He's only jacking the life expectancy up because the man never died. So even as I said, Leonard Jones and all of this, that life is the, or death is the inevitable outcome of life, there's one guy in this particular moment in history that did not follow that scheme, Enoch. Now, lest you think for a moment that maybe he just says he walked with God and then he was not for God took him, you may be thinking, well, maybe he had dementia and he wandered off into the wilderness and they just couldn't find him. Except that when you come to the Holy Spirit-inspired New Testament scriptures. You come to Hebrews chapter 11, you come to the story of Enoch one more time, and in that passage we're told a little bit more about this man, namely that he was a man of faith. In fact, if you read it in the NIV, it says that he faithfully walked with God. The Hebrew text just literally says walked with God, but in Hebrews chapter 11, verse Five, it says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. He was not found because he walked away and nobody found his body. He was not found because God had taken him. And what was the life he lived? A life of faith. What Enoch really was doing was living a life of death where every single day of his life, every moment of his life as he walked on this earth, I mean, as much as a fallen human being can, was to live a life where he died to himself and he lived to God. He faithfully walked with God. He walked a life of death. It's the paradox of the Christian faith. We come to new life. And that new life is a life of death. It's a life in which we, every day, are called to come and die. There's an amazing little uh, moment in the... Little. It's a beautiful moment in the Gospel of Mark. and, uh, And it's reflected in the other Gospels as well. But Jesus is talking to his disciples and says, Hey, guys. Paraphrased. Who do the people say I am? And they say, well... Peter uh, is in one of the other accounts, is referenced as the one who speaks up. Well, some say John the Baptist. Of course, John the Baptist had been uh, beheaded earlier in the story in the Gospel of Mark. So some say you're really John the Baptist in disguise, he just shaved and took a shower and stopped wearing camel hair and eating the the, 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 the things that he ate, uh, locusts and honey. but uh, but that, But we know that's not you're you're sitting here. You're he died. You're still alive. Um, Some say John the Baptist. Others say the prophet Elijah. Intriguingly, the only other person in the scriptures that we know of who did not taste death, like Enoch, didn't experience death. Was according to the scriptures taken up like as a chariot of clouds, right, or something like that? That language. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And, of course, Jesus bypasses that for a moment and says, Well, who do you say I am? And we get those famous words Jesus, uh, from Peter to Jesus when he says, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the promised seed from Genesis 3.15. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus, in one of the other gospel accounts, not in the Mark 8 account, says... Upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this confession, this truth, I will build my church. And then it was shortly right right after that, in in the conversation, that Jesus begins to say, you know I'm going to die, right? The Son of Man must die. Three days later, rise from the dead. And Peter, of course, being Peter, does what Peter does best. He steps up and tells Jesus... Uh, God loves you, but I have a wonderful plan for your life. You will not die. Surely not. I wouldn't let that happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And it's right after that moment in Mark chapter 8. If you haven't turned there, turn there really quickly. I just want to grab this truth. And I want to find it because it's between two other books and I keep turning right past it, looking like a, a dork. Mark chapter 8. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but forfeit his soul for what can a man give in return for his soul for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous sinful generation of him. Will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in glory with his father and with his holy angels, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am not, The secretly undead, quite alive, but just trying to fake everybody out, John the Baptist. And I am not the guy who's not not going to suffer death. I'm the one who will suffer death. I will go to a cross. I will die. And anyone who would follow after me will have to experience that kind of death too. Take up your cross daily and follow me. You'll get to live by dying every day. That's the incredible truth. Of this passage. And that, I think, is what Enoch shows us in those just few brief words. He walked with God, and so God took him. We don't know much more about that mystery. We don't understand much more about it, but we do know this. Jesus calls us to a life of discipleship, a life of death. Guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer got that. Bonhoeffer said, Whoever enters discipleship enters into Jesus' death and puts his his or her own life into death. This has been so from the beginning. The cross is not the horrible end of a pious, happy life, but stands rather at the beginning of a community with Jesus Christ. Every call of Christ leads to death. Whether with the first disciples, we leave home and occupation in order to follow him, or whether with Luther, we leave the monastery to enter secular profession. In either case, the one death awaits us, namely death in Jesus Christ. The dying away of our old form of being human. In Jesus' call. And you see that right in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. This man who was willing to stand against the horrors of Nazi Germany that would take him to a camp where just two weeks before that camp could be liberated, his life is snuffed out. But before it could be, these were his words. Before that happened, he would even say, You know what? A lot of people talk about the cross. A lot of people will talk about how how much they love the cross until they have to bear it themselves. When they have to bear it themselves, then it gets a little trickier. You say they would, uh, many Christians who indeed kneel before the cross of Jesus. Christ and yet reject they would yet reject the and struggle against every tribulation in their own lives they believe they love the cross of Christ and yet they hate the cross in their own lives and so in truth they hate the cross of Jesus Christ as well and in truth they despise that cross and try by any means possible to escape it but Jesus said if you're going to come after me you have to live a life of death And Enoch pictured that for us very briefly. But finally, there's one more important truth of God's faithfulness through that life. Of course, he's walking with us when we die every day. Of course, every moment he's given us the grace and the strength we need to say no to sin and yes to godliness. Of course, every moment of every day he shows us his faithfulness by promising through Jesus, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Even in this life when you will be persecuted, you will be hated When he says to them, fear not, I've overcome the world. But there's a third truth. God's faithful through the death of death. This chapter opens with these words. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Then you fast forward, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You know why I think those words are written like that? Adam, of course, Moses is saying Adam was made in the image of God. And we know from Genesis chapter 3 that he effectively rejected the truth of his image bearing. It's still true. It was a marred image after the fall. It was a broken image after the fall. But he was still very much the image bearer. And yet he failed to represent humanity and brought all of humanity into a curse. That's what we get from the rest of the Scriptures, that we get from that passage that was read earlier, Romans chapter 5. This curse had come through Adam. But then when it says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth, um, we we start to see some lights start to come on. We start to realize some incredibly important truths about God's word and about the promise of God's faithfulness to bring a deliverer. You see, when Adam and Eve had Cain, it says back at the beginning of chapter 4, she praised God because she had a man. It didn't say a child. It didn't even say a male. It said a man. It said this, it's this idea of, Eve is remembering the promise that the seed would crush the serpent's head. And so she sees Cain, this little boy, is born, and she says, The man, the promised seed has come. And then almost immediately in the story, Moses says, She got the wrong guy. Not so good. So Cain rose up, killed his brother. So we also know it wasn't Abel. What are we going to do now? And then Seth comes along. And my personal conviction, and I can't prove this from the scriptures, I can only just kind of, as, as you look at the rest of scriptures, you realize this comes out. And as you look at the rest of the Toledotes, the rest of the genealogies throughout Genesis, it's bearing this out that, that this being made in the image of his father, of Adam, is the notion that they, that, that, that they believe that the seed is still continuing down through the generations that the promised one who would come and be the representative that Adam failed to be, to be the, the kind of human that we failed to be, was still on track. God's faithfulness continued. And we see it throughout this passage. In fact, uh, one theologian, a Bible scholar, Sidney Gradanus, uh, says it like this, the genealogies, some individually and as a whole, mark the process of the narrowing of God's channel of redemption. The first Toledot of heaven and earth begins universally and ends with Seth, with whom God will continue the seed of the woman. The second Toledote of Adam, that's, that's the passage we're in, narrows the field from many people who are destroyed in the flood to Seth's descendant Noah, whom God selects to survive the devastation. The third Toledot begins with Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but ends with a blessing on Shem. The sixth Toledote begins with Terah and his sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, but focuses on Abram. You see how it's narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and continuing to move toward the goal of showing us to Jesus. That's what the Old Testament scriptures are doing. That's what the Toledotes throughout this passage are going to do. I won't continue to read the rest of that. We'll all get lost together. But the whole point is it's, it's closing the doors on some and it's moving toward this redemptive promise this faithfulness of God. And of course, you fast forward to the New Testament times, and the different gospel accounts will bring up these genealogies, certainly Matthew and Luke in particular. And what I'm fascinated by is Luke's account. Luke tells the story, but not from Adam down to Jesus. He tells the story from Jesus back to Adam, as if to say the curse has been reversed. There's a promise. The seed will crush the serpent's head. Death and misery and judgment are going to be allayed. Life will come again. Death's Curse, Sin's curse of death will not stand before the resurrected king of the universe, the one true son of God. And if you read the Luke 3 passage, you really see this on display. This is beautiful. As he talks about Adam, the son of God, at the end of the passage, it starts with Jesus, the son of God. And we begin to realize, especially as you go just a few verses before that, right before that, God's promise is made through... Well, let's look at it together. Look at Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, I want you to notice what comes before and after. Right before the genealogy of Jesus Christ, verse 23 in chapter 3, it tells the story of Jesus' baptism. Jesus had been baptized and was praying and the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus is the son. And so when it traces it out and it gets all the way down, it says to Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, it's, it's Luke's way of saying and the Holy Spirit's way of saying the true son has finally come. The one who now has an opportunity to withstand temptation so that he can be for us the perfect gift. So that he can be for us the perfect atonement. So that he can be for us the righteousness that we failed to have. And so what do you see immediately after that? Jesus goes into the wilderness where he's tempted. Jesus goes into the wilderness where he experiences the very same kind of temptation that Adam and Eve experienced. But we know he rejects it. We know he overcomes so that when he goes to the cross, he can die the perfect substitute. And when he rises from the dead, he can declare the death of death. That's the beauty. And all because of a little genealogy, we have that promise. The fact is, it's crazy, but you ooh, that we get the opportunity to be little reflections of that faithfulness of God in this generation as we proclaim the truth of who Jesus is to the next generation. I don't know how many generations are represented here. In a, in a newer, or younger church, you don't get a lot of this. Four generations right here, right? We have four or five generations, uh, four generations for sure. we got a great-grandma Ruth in our church. we got a great-grandpa Kenny. And then you just start working down the list of these different family lines, and you see God's faithfulness. Little Dinah comes up to me and shows me her notes. A four-year-old Dinah shows me her drawings and her notes from my morning sermon because Jesus is faithfully continuing to speak truth. And it all is because he died the death we deserve to die. And it's all because that those families have caught that and they pass it on to the next generation. We have an opportunity to do the same. We have an opportunity to reflect this incredible truth that the God of the Bible, the God we worship, the God we celebrate, is a God who is faithful in life and in death. Let me pray for us as we let that truth sink in. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And your word tells us that we will someday die. And it tells us that we are today called to die. And it tells us that someday death will have no victory. Death will have no sting. And as we approach the Easter season, the resurrection season, we celebrate that promise. You are faithful. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.